Hi Nisa, welcome to Network Capital. Really excited to have a conversation about your really interesting journey from liberal arts to now tech, and in between there have been lots of adventures. So, tell us a bit about who you are and what do you do today. Well, first of all, thanks for having me so much. Uh, I'm excited to be here and chat with you a little bit about just what I do and what we're up to. Um, so, what I do in my second company, which is Tiny Broadway, is we basically build, um, we bring books to life. So, what we do is we provide a way for teachers and educators to uh, help foster literacy in early education amongst their students by bringing books to life. And the medium we choose is art and theater to help bring books to life. We're really, really excited to be working with amazing talent across the nation, um, amazing art, uh, art, artistic background talent, and also uh, just educators from backgrounds uh, across the nation as well, but primarily focus on NYC. So um, that's not how you started, right? What was growing up like? Um, you're, a, you're an international kid. Where did you grow up? Uh, what did you yeah. study in college? Well, I was born in Canada. So I'm an immigrant to the US. Um, I was born in Canada. And uh, when I was really young, my family had moved. We were in Italy when I was younger. Um, and then a lot of my formative years were actually in um, Pakistan. And so, it, it was very different, right? Because you don't really see the story where immigrant parents come to you know, another country, to the West, if you will, and then have kids and take their kids back home, if you will. Um, but that's right. kind of what happened with us. Uh, and uh, so uh, you know, I, I did a lot of my schooling uh, abroad, even though I was born in Canada. So I was super young when we left. And then I came back to Canada for university. Um, I did neuroscience and philosophy. Um, and then after that, when I got into Y Combinator with my last startup uh, is when we moved to the U.S. So that was in 2015. So quite the journey, quite the travel. Yeah. Identity was always an interesting topic growing up. Yeah, and we, we'll dive deep into that. But would you you'll call, you'll call yourself a non-tech founder, right? You studied uh, neuroscience, uh, psychology, or would you, did you have a tech orientation in college? So I didn't grow up, like I'm not a technical founder, but I am a tech founder. So all my companies, I mean, my first one was a software company uh, through and through. So, and NYC, you know, that's how we applied as a software company. Um, but no, I'm not technical, correct. I, I did liberal arts and I did science, absolutely. But you did manage to build and scale and get into YC and do all of these illustrious things. So, um, Talk to us about curiosity and what led to your first company. What was the problem that you're trying to solve? And how does a non-tech uh, founder create a scalable tech company? Yeah, I think a lot of really awesome big name companies that we know of, the CEO actually wasn't technical, right? So if you even take this, you know, jobs as a scenario as an example, right? I think that what marks a really good founder, CEO, technical or otherwise, is someone who, two things, um, one is able to articulate the problem they're solving. So communication is key and being able to make people buy into your vision, whether that be customers, whether that be investors, whether that be your first hires, um, being able to be articulate and understand, you know, have acute awareness of your understanding of the world. Um, but the second piece that I think is really important is this aptitude to see a problem and find a way to solve it, to be crazy enough to believe that, you know, even if there's a multi-billion dollar competitor in your space, that you know, they're not doing a good job and I think I can do it better. And when I started this, it was like, mm. I was 24. And so like, that, that's kind of crazy, right? Like most people, my family included, were like, what are you doing? You have a job. Why are you, you know, why are you going to quit and do this? Um, what are the odds? And the odds are against you. And so I think that I actually personally believe that um, th this idea of critical thinking and communication are two key ingredients. And then just everything else comes down to execution, technical or not. Um, and if a founder right. is technical and, and really um, able to build a great product, but doesn't know how to understand the problem, the customer, you could be building this palace that really no one even needs that you're in love with. Um, and the inverse is also true. If someone is uh, really passionate about what they do, but they don't know how to execute it as a non-technical founder, you get nowhere. So you kind of need this balance. But I think critical thinking and, and just the aptitude to like get things done and, and execute on it are, are two critical ingredients for a founder, technical or not, doesn't really matter. 
what's the early entrepreneurial energy in your family? Was anybody in your extended family, mom's side or dad's side, an entrepreneur? Because uh, there's an interesting mix here, mom Italian, uh, dad Pakistani. Uh, tell us about, you know, their reactions and uh, how did they take this? Yeah, um, well, look, what I'll say is like immigrant families don't really understand it the same at least mine did I guess some do but you know usually there's this concept of like do the safer thing get a good job have a stable pay um and I don't think it's because they don't believe in you it's just that they're just you know it's scary right it's this idea of like how are you going to make it we don't have uh like my family wasn't a, some wealthy family that that came over here they didn't have deep networks where I could get connected to people right we didn't come with um, you know, bank balances that I could lean on when it came to starting a company or didn't have uh, those connections. We had to go out and build them ourselves. Um, and so in a way, when, when my grandparent, though, uh, on my dad's side came to Canada several years ago uh, with my father um, and his siblings, um, my grandparents both actually started this flea market and they knew no English mm. and they were Punjabi, knew no English. Uh, had this religion that, you know, wasn't even common, right? This way of dressing and, and looking that was different. Um, and uh, and still just persevered, built up this business that ends up becoming very successful for their family and their 10 kids. My dad is one of 10. And wow. goes on, my Pichapi family, right? And then goes on and sets up all of his kids with like a house and their car and like, you know, becoming like turning the family into like middle-class um, Canadian household that was able to afford things and not have the same narrative of, of, of when they came to, to Canada as immigrants. So to me, that was phenomenal, right? Like whenever I thought about building a company and I'm like, but it's hard. What if I fail? I just think of them and I'm like, oh my God, like if I fail, it's on me. It's not like something in particular because at the end of the day, they didn't even have language at their advantage. They didn't right. have the cultural norms. They didn't have connections. So if anything, I've come with more things uh, than what they had set up. So so I always felt like it's possible to do, I guess. Maybe you could say that. Hmm. Um, but I do always struggle with this idea, is an entrepreneur born? Is it nurture or nature? I don't know the answer to that. Um, and I, I don't know if we can over-optimize and say, because I saw someone in my family um, do this on their own. Like, I don't know, but definitely that, that played an influence on me. Um, but the other real influence was like, honestly, um, before starting my own company, I had worked at a startup and I worked at Top Hat, this company that's doing very well and is still around. And I right. worked very closely with the CEO and one of the co-founders at the time, Mike and Mosin. And I remember looking at Mike and I remember actually having a conversation with my then boss, with the CEO of that startup. It was very early stage when I joined. And uh, I was doing really well there, much to my surprise. You know, I'd never worked at a startup before then. This was a tech company. And I, I remember wanting to start at that time, my first company, start Give Effect, but I just didn't know how to quit. And, you know, you have like college debt to pay off, all this stuff. So how, how do you quit and just take that leap of faith and let go yeah. of all the stability and bet on yourself? Like you have no guarantee. You could work so hard and in the end, it might not go anywhere. That's the nature of startups. Sometimes it doesn't work out. The idea you're working on or thing you're building maybe doesn't hit the mark. And I remember going to Mike and saying, hey, listen, like when you, like, how did you start? When you quit, um, you know, your job or whatever, like how did, how did you have the courage? And he said something that made the biggest impact on me actually, I think. And he goes, and he said like, so what? If I failed, so what? And I was like, what do you mean? So what? He goes, I didn't lose anything. I just got this crash course that's better than any MBA, basically. I, I learned so much in a very short period of time. My resume now looks even better than before. If anything, I can always go back to my last job, but better yet, I'll probably be getting a job like moving up from where I was in my last right. position because of this. And he said that, and it was almost like, I swear to God, I remember it. Like he took this weight off my shoulders and I was... I think within that week, I put in my resignation. I was like, I'm starting this. Like, what do I have to lose? He's absolutely right. So it's like we have this irrational fear of failure because we're, it's ingrained in us from society. But I, I think like once you break it down, that failure, what does it really mean? And it could mean different things to different people. Maybe maybe there really is like sure. you have a mortgage and two kids and like, okay, that's real. Like you can't afford to fail. But in my case, uh, you know, with no dependence, with no mortgage to worry about, just young, starting my career. Like, what did I have to lose? He was absolutely right. 
Uh, he didn't know at the time that he was setting me up for that, but uh, it's still to this day, I give him credit for, for saying that. So all that to say, a uh, community of other founders makes a big impact on, uh, on helping someone become entrepreneurial, I think. It does. Uh, how did Mike take to your resignation and what did you do <laughs> right after? He wasn't very impressed at first, um, mostly because I didn't announce what I was going to do. I kept it very um, low key and I just resigned and they were wanted to know, I guess, what, what, you know, what led to that. Like it was very surprising, I suppose. Um, but afterwards has been like, uh, I remember when I was uh, working on Give Effect, just a great cheerleader had always been like speaking highly of us or referring wherever he could, if someone was doing something a nonprofit, speaking about our company. Um, I consider him uh, still someone who inspired me to, to go on and take that leap of faith and uh, really an admiration of everything he does. So uh, we're on great terms at this point, but yeah, he, uh, at the first, at the beginning, it was a little like, oh no, what are you doing? What did I do? Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, uh, you went around building uh, Give Effect in a very particular manner, in a very deliberate manner. Tell, tell me about the early days of Give Effect, and then we'll dive deep into concepts of venture capital, MRR, when to raise, et cetera. But talk to, give us a flavor of the first hundred days of Give Effect and what was your routine like? What were you thinking? What was fear of failure, if anything, on your mind? I mean, there's constant fear of failure, constant imposter syndrome. But what I will say is um, I was obsessed with solving a problem in my industry. So I had worked in nonprofits. I had worked at the third largest refugee settlement center in Canada. Um, and the nature of the work that nonprofit professionals do is really important, right? Like they're serving the most important members of our community. When you think of an SPCA, when you think of a food bank, when you think of Habitat for Humanity, Boys and Girls Club, et cetera, right? Their work is so important. And one thing that always struck me is there was this giant company, this competitor that's a multi-billion dollar competitor out there building software for nonprofits. And I'd used those tools. And, it was, it was really terrible software. It was built from like in the eighties from when I was born and it was just not good software yet. It wasn't cheap, but there was no one really innovating in the space. They had this blanket monopoly. And um, the reason being that most founders just didn't think this was a sector to innovate on, right? Um, you could say it's because most founders hadn't worked a nonprofit, so weren't aware of the problem, but I hadn't, it was a really near and dear cause to me. And I knew that it was a really large sector as well, that it could not only be a business that does good, but also does well. Um, nonprofits are the third largest contributor to GDP in the US. Nonprofit professionals make up a lot of job creation in the US. Um, and yet every other industry has been innovated by um, software. We have ed tech innovation, we have healthcare being innovated, we have FinTech, but nothing for this giant industry. That's like the third largest after uh, e-commerce and automobile. And so to me, that was crazy, right? Like that's ridiculous. There's this overlooked large industry that's doing really important work that needs good software to do their job. Yet here they are still working in spreadsheets after spending thousands and thousands of dollars on software that's designed for them. Um, and that was really it. I wanted to just build a better version of the software that nonprofits need uh, and decided to build, you know, my first product was this company that had like CRM, email marketing, volunteer management, fundraising software, everything combined in one so that nonprofits don't have to do data entry by leaving the system. Everything talks to each other. Right. Seems so basic, yet doesn't really exist for nonprofits. And, and that's why we uh, were able to be really successful in the space as well. Yeah. So um, that was the vision of the company. You had a clear market uh, that you wanted to go into, a clear problem. But building that product out, how did you find the first set of engineers, your partners, so to speak? Well, I want to I want to go back and be really real with you. By no means, when it was time to go set out and solve this problem, did we know that, okay, this is what the perfect solution looks like. We started off with this idea of um, being crowdfunding for nonprofits, so solving one piece of the puzzle. And then after that, we went ahead and realized, okay, this is one piece of the puzzle. We're actually still not solving the problem. And I didn't get the answer to that until I actually spoke to customers who were saying no. So I always say this, mm -hmm. that like the customers who actually reject your product in the early days, that is your like product feedback. And if you're, as a CEO, mm -hmm. your job is to figure out and have empathy for why they're saying no, rather than have your ego bruised and like walk away and move on to the next customer or assume they're saying no because of cost or some other reasons. 
um, that I go into usually when I, when I talk about this piece, but um, you know, it, it's like that no is how we figured out what we need, what was that ideal solution. So we had a vision for what, like I had a vision for what problem I wanted to solve. The way I was manifesting the solution isn't what the customer really wanted. And so then had to sit back, understand really what was it going to take to turn that no into a right. yes. Um, and that's yeah. how we really built out this, this uh, product over a period of time. Yeah. Uh, now I'm going to ask you to connect the dots between boxing and rejection. <laughs> Most people don't think <laughs> there's a parallel there, but it really is. So, um, you know, when I was in college, I wanted to, I don't know why I suddenly thought it would be great for me to take up boxing. And I thought, I sure, why not? <laughs> and I was like, this will be great for me. This is what I need to do. Um, I want to say it's part of maybe my heritage and background. There was a way to let out all that. We have so much energy, so it's a good way to let out all of that. So anyway, I, I decided I wanted to become a boxer and uh, I was taking these boxing classes and I, I had this really great trainer, he's like um, two-time Olympic trainer and like super uh, accomplished. And I thought when I was starting out, like I really didn't last long, by the way, but I thought when I was starting out that... Um, you know, there's going to be like, what's the way to become a great boxer? So I was like, well, I want, I want to master this. So I came to him and I was like, listen, how do you become a really fabulous boxer? What's the, what's the method? And I thought he was going to give me like techniques about how to dodge a punch or how to punch or how to swing or what, you know, terminology that I'd have to understand or certain techniques about the logistics of boxing. And instead he looked at me and he stopped and he said, he said, actually, and he said, it's really simple before you can master the techniques to become an amazing boxer, you have to get over one important thing. I was like, what is it? And he goes, the fear of getting punched in the face. And it took me actually a few minutes to sit back and understand what he was saying, because what he wasn't saying is you have to get over getting punched in the face and like, it's not supposed to hurt. That's not what he was saying at all. What he was saying is you have to get over the fear of getting punched in the face. Because only after you're not afraid of getting punched in the face, can you stop and say, okay, I got punched, but why? What did I do wrong? What method did I skip? What could I have done better? Can you really improve on it? But if you duck or you go for cover before you ever got punched because you're so afraid of that fear of getting punched in the face before you ever got punched, you're not gonna actually improve. You're gonna stay in your comfort zone. In fact, you're not gonna go ahead and box. And to me, that was so, um, his words would echo loud and clear when it came time to start my first company. See, most founders, fail, especially I would say this really, I think has to be nuanced. I think hardware companies are different to an extent. I think B2C consumer products are different to an extent, but B2B software companies, especially, you don't need really much capital to get started. And the reason that most founders fail at scaling their companies is they're so afraid of that rejection because it does feel like getting punched in the face. When you go into that first meeting with a customer who's been in their industry forever, right? If you're innovating in a large, larger, you know, industry, it's an old industry and they've been in their space for a very long time. You come into it as this new founder, you don't really probably know everything that you need to know at that stage. You probably sound really terrible at that time compared to what you sound much later once you have traction and revenue and years of doing this. So um, really it feels like getting punched in the face. You built this product and people think it's garbage and you have to learn how to not be afraid of that no, but rather seek that no out really. It's, it's hard to do, but really passionately so that you can find how to turn the no into a yes. So how did you start getting turning those no's into yes? Perhaps yeah. boxing training and what else? Well, so when I went ahead, I was obsessed with this idea of, look, we were bootstrapped um, and, you know, we weren't from Silicon Valley, bootstrap company. So for me, it was like, well, we, we need revenue to be able to continue what we're doing. Um, and so tried to go out direct to customers. I had worked in the industry. So at first I went to like people that I knew, nonprofits that I'd worked at, people I'd worked with who knew me. And at that time it was like, hey, come on board because of this trust of like who I am, like this new vendor, but you know me. Um, and it was this freemium idea. Like you can get the product for free. And actually freemiums are the worst thing in the world because most of the people that I knew uh, that are really great people in the nonprofit sector didn't care to use the product because it was a freemium. Like, so they were like, oh, this is nice. I'll do it for my friend as a favor. But that's hmm. very different than a customer, right? A customer isn't doing you a favor. A customer is seeking you out because you're gonna solve their problem. And so I decided I have to have the customer pay for this product. It doesn't matter what they're paying. It has to be just something significant enough 
significant enough that they feel the pain that they paid for it. So when the product isn't doing what they want, they have to pick up the phone and like give me an earful for why it's not working really well. And that's amazing because that's what builds out your product. That's what builds out our product. Um, and so for me, it was like, I got to pick up, I got to start emailing customers that I don't know, go out and email nonprofits. Nonprofits are 501c3s so you can get their emails publicly available. And I would scrape and find emails and go online and LinkedIn and find any connections we have in common. And while LinkedIn's great, I would still resort back to email. Um, even if it was a cold email, I'd make sure the subject line and the body of the email is relevant. Like I knew what we were talking about. I understood the industry I'd worked in it. And I was asking for like, hey, give me a shot at like showing you what we built. We believe we can solve this specific pain point of yours. And for those that did respond to the email, I guess it was their specific pain point, right? So we were very direct in what, what pain point we were solving. And, uh, you know, of course, most of those people who came to demos to meet with me or come on the phone and, and chat about the product were a no because maybe the product wasn't where it needed to be. And every time I get a note, let's say I have a call set up a week from now, I'd go back with my uh, co-founders at the time, my engineering team, and I'd say, this is what we need to change in the product um, before the next meeting. So we have to go out. And so at first you do things that don't scale. And so we were like, we have to fix this. And then I'd call them back Got and it. say, hey, the product has now evolved. Would you like to take another look? And um, getting that first customer is so hard. I still remember that first check. And then it's about getting your first three, your first five, 10. And then from there, we start putting process around it. Tell us about the first check. God, the first check was a nonprofit that uh, provided resources to individuals who uh, uh, were visually impaired. And um, it was Columbia Lighthouse for the Blind, actually. <laughs> I distinctly remember them by name. Uh, and they were the first main check. Like we had already customers that we were serving at the time that were doing crowdfunding. But um, they were an early adopter uh, of the product. And, you know, at the time, the product was also a very different price point than it was later. Obviously, we didn't have so much built out. But um, th that come when they came on board, um, I think after that, every morning was anxiety driven after we onboarded that customer. We were also in YC by then. But every morning, I had this anxiety of, oh my God, I'm sure I'm going to look at my inbox and there's an email from them about why they're leaving our product because it's just not, you know, it doesn't do this or this piece isn't working. And I think most founders can relate to this syndrome, this fear that we have, this anxiety of, oh, is the customer going to be happy using it? And let me tell you, there were a lot of things that we had to fix and, and make better, but we, I think 10X, like our product development roadmap efficiency because of those early adopters um, and, and what we built out for them. So yeah, it's... Um, it's, it's a powerful uh, feeling when you have someone who's paid for the product because they ascribe value to something you've built. Right. Um, and that's powerful because it helps you then understand who you're serving specifically, the customer and their pain points, rather than again, going back into this idea phase as a founder, philosophizing what the best method is to solve the problem when really maybe your customer wants something else. Um, so, so yeah, it was humbling. And uh, what I noticed from your story so far, deep customer insights, you'd worked in the sector, you knew who you were talking to, um, you'd built out the product, accelerated the rate of growth. Uh, but very briefly, I think I saw the email that you sent to, uh, <laughs> to your car. That was, a, that, was, that was a long essay. That was a very particular kind of an email that you, uh, you'd written. Why did you write it that way? And could you describe that email uh, to us? To, uh, to our yeah. audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, what I'll summarize that is like, listen, um, email marketing is really, really powerful. Going out and directly emailing your customers really matters. Um, I still to this day believe that even with LinkedIn being so popular right now. So yes, LinkedIn is important, but I actually think email is still my primary and LinkedIn is an add-on. Um, and, and I really stand by that. Um, so what what I did is we had these emails that were like based on best practices of how to draft a cold email to your customer for sales and copied a bunch of different formats, modified subject lines. And I was obsessed, like I am a data geek. So I was obsessed with the data on this and like, what does a customer say? So let's send out like 50 of these emails, 50 of this version and see what happens. And again, as with everything, I think, I, I think, I hope if anyone's listening to this, the theme here is like, those no's are your greatest teacher. So when I would get emails back, the rejection emails of why someone, either the low open rates is one thing, but people would actually reply back, rejecting the email and saying no, and following up with them as to like, why they might be saying no. That's what really was super insightful and taught me so much. 
So a lot of times people- And you were deliberate about that. You always did that, right? Always did that. In the early days, oh my God, if we didn't do that, there's no way, there's no way we would have learned as much as we did. I did that. uh, I would go from 6 a.m., work from 6 a.m. till midnight. And from 6 a.m., I was setting up, taking all the data from the night before and setting up my email blasts to be like really significant. Sometimes they weren't even email blasts. I'd be like manually emailing people. Um, And so again, doing things that don't scale at the beginning, the early days. Um, And I was just obsessed with like finding if there was a connection, I knew them, mutual contact, something or another. I would want that to be in my subject, uh, in my intro paragraph, right? But really what was really important in that intro paragraph was like, you have like very little time before you land in someone's trash or spam from when you actually send them the email. And I thought to myself, well, what's the hook? What what do they care to, to know about? Get right to the point. So it was about like, this is what we do and or the pain point that we solve. And I found that instead of saying what we do as my main subject line, if we talked about what we solve, the pain point that we solve, we actually had a better response in terms of the email hmm. response rate. So I would lead with, look, we're solving this problem for customers similar to yours. They also care very little, I realize, about my expertise and my background and that I'm a Forbes 30 under 30 and all the things. That doesn't matter to your customer right now. Like, that's great, Anissa, but I don't know you. <laughs> this is a cold email. So for me to get a response from them right away, I had to go ahead and think to myself, well, what matters to them in their day? Going back to empathy of your customer. It's so important. So I was like, okay, well, this is the pain point we're solving. What else matters to them for social proofing? We do this for customers like yours. So if we serve food banks and the email was to a food bank, you better believe I realized early on that, hey, talking to them about other food banks could be anywhere in the US is powerful to them because now you have their attention. Oh, you, you do serve customers like mine. You understand my pain point. Um, mm-hmm. If it wasn't a food bank, talking about maybe other nonprofits of a similar revenue size, that mattered to them because a small nonprofit versus a big one. Maybe it was tech stack other nonprofits that are using BlackBot or DonorPerfect, et cetera, uh, we help replace their pain points. So like making sure there was something that they could relate to. And so that's where the emails had to be very personalized at the beginning because I had to really figure out, okay, I'm emailing this set and I have no customers in common, but I do have the tech stack in common. We have solved this for other customers that have a similar tech stack or revenue size. And so, or location, location was a less powerful one, but like New York City, you're in New York City, this other customer of ours is New York City as well. You know, we'd love to talk to you about how we're solving this specific problem. Um, And so once you understand that hook at the beginning, so once you've hooked them in, then like give them the meat of it. Don't, Don't have them guessing what you do. Like, Give them a little summary of it, not something too overwhelming, uh, some examples that they might look at, and then literally an easy ask for setting up that discovery call or demo or whatever it is that you're trying to do or just hop on a phone call. Um, And so the email that we had was very long, but that longer email did, like it did- With lots of links. Yeah, subject line, et cetera, so much better. And so I always tell um, founders, like there's best practices and that's great, look at them. But at the end of the day, A-B testing is everything. And you have to figure out what your customer responds to. Maybe you're selling something to a technical audience and they don't want a super long email like that. Maybe you're selling to a customers like nonprofits, details what they're looking for. It depends on just your customer. You won't know that through a best practice. You'll know that by right. A-B testing. The gr- uh, great uh, feedback for our audience around the world. We have like these hubs from Toronto to uh, Istanbul everywhere. And uh, they, in all of these hubs, they're entrepreneurs building interesting companies. I think this particular insight is so useful when you don't really have the product market fit, uh, but you've understood the problem even at that stage when you have the product market fit like you did and you're reaching out to a different set of stakeholders, it's still the same. Um, so Anissa, it seems like you were on a good path. You were hustling hard. You were solving the problem. Uh, why raise money at all? I mean... Uh, what was the core need? Because you went, went about fundraising in a very deliberate way. Walk us through the journey. Yeah, so actually with Give Effect, there was never fundraising. We never raised to be able to reach the numbers that we did. Um, I, you know, with a very small team, built it out to just under 2 million annual processing revenue of SaaS. Um, had no outside investors beyond obviously Y Combinator uh, that you know always has 7% in the companies. Uh, there were no outside investors and uh with 
with but to answer your question about why take revenue or why my question was why combinator and the likes like why sh uh, why should anybody raise a why why combinator at all yeah i don't think a why combinator is raising to be honest i think a why combinator is a way to massively accelerate your business um when people usually come to me and they say oh i'm applying to yc because i want to learn how to run a business i'm like oh gosh that's the wrong reason to apply to yc they are not sitting down with you and doing tutorials about like how to build a business that actually doesn't happen you sit around in these weekly kind of uh smaller groups and they're going to go around the room and say how much did you grow this week how much did you grow this week why did you not grow by x number you know 30 percent, whatever it might be that they're looking for and they'll say you have a problem how many users did you speak with to solve the problem all it is is yes they give you 120 uh, thousand and it changes now it might be I think 125 or something of the sort which is nothing you know when you think of it in the grand scheme of things for seven percent but it's enough to keep you grinding for three months give you enough revenue to like have a really small place near the YC campus and just be able to like grind out get customers be obsessed with your user right so that by the time demo day comes around you have this hockey stick ideally to show and talk to investors so yes demo day uh, being a Y Combinator company places a lot of value in cloud when it comes to demo day, right? It gives you access to, if you don't have access to the network, it now gives you access to it. So that's powerful. But YC, even if you weren't going to raise, and we knew before demo day, we had decided that we were not going to fundraise pre-demo day. And even then, I would say YC is so critical for, and, and again, I, I know it's changed a lot, but it was such a fundamental impact on our business. Um, the reason simply is your co-founders. You're sitting with other really smart founders as well who are in the same boat as you, who are genuinely happy when you succeed. And so many problems, so many solutions that we came up with uh, were sitting around having lunch or we all kind of lived in the same campus area, sitting around having lunch with other founders and just saying like, have you thought about solving the problem this way? Or did you talk to so-and-so? Um, it's, it's also different than I think your traditional MBA program where there's no fronting. You know, yes, in the press, we might be talking about how our startup is growing and all the things we're doing. But when we were sitting around the room as founders, YC had this culture of humility that was like, you want to actually be honest about your problems because there might be someone who can help solve it for you, help give you ideas. Hmm. You're going to pretend you have everything figured out. You're actually not going to benefit from that network, right? And so YC's power is a network of other founders. The ability to go to alumni founders by this internal email listserv that we have so I could reach hmm. out to you know, the, the CEO and founder of WePay uh, or, you know, talk to somebody who's in another adjacent industry and just understand how they solve these problems. That's powerful. I don't think you could, I, I think 7% is a bargain for that. So uh, YC just rapidly accelerates your business is, is my opinion because of the network of founders and this culture of talking about what's broken in your startup and this community. It's so lonely and mental health wise. It's just so isolating building a company. Uh, hmm. And if you don't have a strong network of co-founders around you, I think it's easier to give up and call it quits when the going gets tough. I think that people underestimate the value of that community. Just two questions in YC. Uh, one, because it comes to us a lot. We have in the past hosted several Y Combinator founders, uh, but your story of getting into YC, uh, tech, talk to us about the best practices. How did you tailor your application? Because you were also uh, catering to a very particular different kind of a customer, maybe non-standard non YC customers. What's your advice to such founders and how, what's your secret sauce there? Yeah, I don't know that I have a secret sauce for it. I would just say that YC looks to understand how you intimately understand your customer, your market, and how you believe and know that you're going to scale out into this market and build a really big business around it. I don't think there's any one industry that YC looks for, right? Like, They've invested in shoe companies, a bottle company like um, Give Me Tap. Uh, they've invested in, uh, you know, us as software for nonprofits. They've invested in a t-shirt company, for God's sake, Teespring. Like, I don't think there's an industry that YC is looking for. They invested in, um, there was, a, I remember looking at a company at the time uh, as an alumni going back, there was this uh, company that is like a, um, a, a cart, like a tea to go you know how we have the Taliwale that go in India and Pakistan? Like it was basically that, but like in Europe. And so I don't believe that there's an industry. I do believe that YC is looking for companies that are rapidly scaling and are going to really help, you know, revolutionize the sector or, or make it better right. uh, and build things that people want. <laughs> They're going to make things that people want. And that you understand how you're going to do it. So they're betting on the team. Why are you the best team to go out and do this? Because that's the hardest thing. They're betting on what do you understand about your customer? 
that your competitor doesn't understand or the other people in the space don't understand that you do, which is why you're going to be successful. Tell me why we should bet on you. Right. Um, and then just the, the hunger, like how hungry is this founder to succeed? I think that's really what it takes. Um, I was actually obsessed with, um, I thought it would be really influential for me to be able to meet with these two individuals that I had looked up, Gary Tan and Alexis Ohanian. I had no idea who they were. I had just been looking for mentors once we had started Give Effect and it was really hard. And we were doing this crowdfunding model. And I knew that we had to fix something in it. And I just, I was like, oh my God, how do I, how do I find people in the space? There's all this noise in the startup sector of consultants and advisors who are like run away from them. And then there's like founders who have done something um, and for whatever reason, I can't even remember why, but those two, Gary Tan and Alexis Ohanian at the time were two names that I was really like, okay, I have to meet with these people. I have to find a way. And I think I had linked in them or whatever. That same week, I got a message from a local in Toronto startup hub conference or some event saying, hey, Nisa, we have two tickets to this event. The keynote is this guy, Alexis Ohanian, on his book without their permission. I was like, what? <laughs> like I was trying to reach this person and I thought, oh, I have to go. I have to go to this event and I'm going to have to talk to him. Like I have to make a point. And we get there and we're at this event and afterwards I buy his book so that he could sign my book. And I'm like, while he's signing the book, I'm using this as an excuse to pitch him, right? Shooters shoot. So always take your shot. <laughs> and I did. And he's like, listen, have you applied to YC? I had no idea what that was. I, I really had no clue what YC was. And he's like, apply to YC and send me, tweet me your Hacker News ID. That was it. So the deadline was the next day, by the way. So that night I had my co-founders. They're like, what is this? What are we doing? I'm like, you're going to say this line for, for the video because you submit this little video as well, the founding team. Right. You're going to say this other line. And they're like, what is this for? And I'm like, don't worry about it. Just say this line. And I filled out the application, completed the video, submitted, never heard anything. And I thought, okay, well, like once I realized what YC was, it's so hard to to get into YC and I, I didn't expect that we, we'd even get accepted. And then we got this email saying, hey, we haven't heard back from you guys. Are you not interested in coming to your interview anymore? Their original acceptance to come to an interview went in our junk folder. So again, oh. last minute, we get to book this flight. Like we just, it was one shot apply. It wasn't a, you know, and it was the day before the deadline. Like, so I don't know that I have any advice to give beyond. I think what helped us is I really knew the customer understood the pain point, was able to articulate it, talked about the team, uh, and talked about if we get into YC, how we're going to continue to scale. So that was it. And take your shots and book last minute tickets. You know, two important advice when, we did, when we required. Did. And then we went there. Uh, Justin Khan was uh, one of the, uh, was a person who actually picked up the phone to call us to let us know we got in after our interview. And um, he told me afterwards that, um, when I picked up the phone, when, when he called us, he goes, that's one of his memorable moments because I think I may have like screamed, like I just thought it was gonna be a rejection. You know, you have all this imposter syndrome. Uh, I don't know if it's like this idea of being, uh, I, don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the reason are. I think a lot of founders struggle with it, but I thought there's no way we're gonna get in. We built software for nonprofits. Like that can't be cool enough to get into YC. And uh, so I tell people like, there's no industry. Don't, don't, that's 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 a wrong approach. There's no specific industry they're looking for. They're really looking for the things that you should want to know if you're going to build a successful company anyway. Right. And uh, demo day, no fundraising. Was that an easy call? And what was demo day like? Demo day is one of the most stressful days of your life. I barely remember a lot of it because the CEO founders who are pitching, you're just like, it's a whirlwind. It's a whirlwind. And everyone says this. Everyone who had to pitch is like, it was a whirlwind. Um, and everyone who is the co-founders who are standing there, it's a little bit of the edges off. You're networking a little bit, but it's still a stressful day if you're fundraising. Uh, for us, it was a little bit more relaxing because we weren't in the rat race of raising at the time. So, um, you know, you always have this thought of, oh God, I hope the revenue continues to grow. But we were doing 10K MRR at the time. And like, it was enough to keep going. And we thought, let's Let's just see how far we can take this before we even approach raising. And then that hmm. just kind of grew from there. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, it was, it's a, it's a stressful day for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but great. Like, so your advice was, uh, or at that time counterintuitive, but uh, it makes so much sense now. Grow your MRR to as much as you can with the existing resources and uh, then see if, if there's a VC founder fit. 
is uh, would that could be super angels i think that one thing i've realized now is there's so many forms of funding that you don't have to just rely on the traditional like tier one vc route um uh, you know uh, capital is capital right so just make sure of course the person who's giving you capital isn't someone who's going to be like knocking on your door every minute bugging you while you're trying to build your business super obsessed about their money thinking that oh my god what's going to happen with it like that's terrible right the last thing you want to do is building business is hard you don't want to be babysitting the person who gave you capital so you could go go grow this business and if what they want is a clear-cut answer of like how it's going to grow and there's going to be no loss and no mistakes like that run away from someone like that for sure um so i think like all things equal capital is capital do your due diligence for sure like yeah someone who understands your domain is cool but really like it's really good to know how was this person with other founders that he gave money to? So you he or she gave money to, I should say. So you should want to kind of do some due diligence on them because um, a bad relationship can be really bad and really harmful for your business. A lot of time wasted. Right. Um, so don't don't take expensive money. And that's what I call expensive money. Um, so so yeah, I think the VC or otherwise, I'd like to say, because like that's not the only way. And I think people come into this thinking that's the only path. Um, and I want to be clear, my position isn't that you should never raise. I think if you want to build like a really big business, you will at some point have to raise. Um, and, and I think if we had continued on with, you know, give effect as, as this model to grow out, we would have gone for an A round, but we would have diluted a lot less because of the fact that we built it out on revenue. Um, and I'd, hmm. rather, I'd rather go out and find a higher that's needed to help take the business to the next level because that's still cheaper than giving out equity to someone who's going to give you money, but you still have to find how to deploy. You still have to go scale your team and grow it, which is, I don't care who you are, how much money you have, that's so challenging for any business, how to scale your team out at a certain point. Um, so there is a time and a place to raise. It's, it's not my advice that you should never raise. I think every founder should just not get caught up in the hype and think there's this one formula, you got to go raise money, um, but instead be obsessed with revenue. And then even if you want to raise, you now have the balls in your court, you have leverage. You have investors picking up the phone or in fact calling you because you actually have a, have a real business. Yeah, fantastic advice, Anissa. So what, a demo day gets over, you continuing on this path of growing your uh, MRR, et cetera. Um, when did you start reaching hyperscale? Because this company had a pretty interesting conclusion recently. So talk to us about that phase and how did you feel um, when you knew that you were close to the finish line and when you actually crossed it? Yeah, so three years in, like um, we'd been at it for like a year and a half before YC, but it was this other model, crowdfunding model. Once we had applied to YC, we'd already pivoted to doing software, being this backend CRM, uh, operation software, like email marketing, volunteer scheduling, CRM, et cetera, and started getting our first checks in for that, right? Uh, that was pre-YC. So our whole focus going into YC was really clear. It was get more of these customers. Like there was no questions asked, right? That's what that's hmm. all the day and night and build the product to get even better so that the people who aren't saying yes, if there was a feature set they needed, let's go build it out. That's it, which helps a lot. That's what I mean by like obsessed with your customers and revenue. It's not even just for the sake of revenue. It just helps you give clarity on what you have to focus on, who, who your audience is. Um, so went out and did that. And, and the first uh, couple of years were so brutal. We compare ourselves. We had to like, whatever revenue we did have, um, if we wanted to grow, had to go and hire based on that. It, hmm. it was fun times, but it was stressful. Um, three years at the three-year mark, I was like, okay, we, we have a method. We have a process that's working. I can see how we can scale this out. I can see hmm. the people that it'll scale out at. Um, and then we really had to figure out a way. And the problem that we ultimately faced was, how do you scale out fast enough? How do you build out um, like a good sales force to be able to like go out and scale this and have more impact? Um, and right. so uh, to, to figure that out, because it comes down to hiring and scaling, it's, it's really challenging, I think, yeah. Yeah, so um, you concluded the business recently. Um, was it a bittersweet feeling? Was it a hurrah moment? What was, what was it like? Yeah, so we had decided a couple years before selling that we uh, wanted to uh, that we wanted to go for a sale. That we didn't want to raise uh, a round. That we decided, you know, it had been a long process. We'd all been in it. Um, you know, founding teams spend a lot of time together, and uh, there comes a point where you have to decide like how much energy everyone has, how much gas is left in the tank, and what's the what's the best time? Is it a graceful time to you know part ways and move on? And so we had decided that that was the best conclusion for mm. our business and talked to YC and went through a bunch of scenarios. 
went through that, um, actually was really successful at that, um, ended up getting four offers um, and uh, had a buyer term sheet in hand, uh, multiple term sheets in hand. Uh, the day that we got the term sheet in hand, um, my uh, co-founder, who was my ex, actually uh, messaged me saying that uh, they don't need me anymore and that he's upset that I never appreciated him seven years ago when we dated, even though we had broken up many years ago. So here was this term sheet, this multi-million dollar term sheet in hand and uh, a business that I built uh, along with my co-founders um, and uh, the two brothers, my co-founders, um, who individually were not major shareholders compared to me, but combined were over an email one day told me goodbye. So fired me as a CEO, removed me as president, and then called immigration to have me deported. Um, and that was my ending there. You didn't expect that, but that is how it ended. So it was a great story, a great term sheet in hand, a great ending. Um, but uh, rather than becoming, uh, having the opportunity to even see an exit for himself and become a multimillionaire, it was uh, to, uh, to punish me. And, uh, and that was it, and I moved on. You moved on, and uh, you moved on stronger, I guess. I think there's a new company brewing, right? There is. Um, you know, it was a new company. Was uh, the new company for me was like it's interesting because it wasn't in my domain, it wasn't in my area of expertise, it wasn't something that I thought I'd be building. Everyone thought it would be SaaS again, but you know there was this exit that we were going towards. There's this term sheet in hand. There's this, you know, all of our employees were gonna keep jobs. They were all gonna get raises. All of our customers were gonna be well taken care of, been working on this process diligently. And then out of nowhere to have your life pulled from you. Um, I think a lesson here can be about be very careful, you know, competency should never be an excuse to overlook an ethical co-founder. And if you can see signs early on, no matter how competent you think they are, I would advise every founder to be really, really careful, um, no matter how much equity you have or not. And uh, it was a very, very difficult, not just expensive lesson for me. It was devastating. I was, I was extremely depressed, you know? And it's in the middle of a pandemic. And then they call immigration to kill my visa. Like my, what was next? I thought it like the only thing next was come and kill my cats. You know, like there was, I couldn't understand why someone would do this. I'm going to tell you, like I sat there because this is how my second company was born. I sat there and I just couldn't understand how someone could do this and live with themselves. I, re I really couldn't. I was like, no, they're going to, and everybody tried to, you know, YC jumped in, other founders like, no, don't worry. They're just being emotional. No one walks away from a deal like this. And you know, it didn't happen in the end. And they'd removed me and it was unjust, it was wrong. It was, it was everything that everyone knows. And I was like, how could they be okay with it? So I had tears running down my eyes and it's, it's COVID, it's a pandemic. So it's not like, okay, go take a vacation, go clear your head, go somewhere, go do something. One, I had to be in survival mode to redo my immigration in time. Otherwise in a month I had to leave. And I was thinking it's COVID again, what do I, do I sell my furniture and leave? So basically you're Canadian and you have to go back to Canada. Correct, like correct. Well, I didn't, I managed to redo uh, my entire process and, and complete my green card in time. But um, it was like this whole process where I was like, what do I do with myself right now? How do I deal with this depression? And it was like something had died, I was grieving. You know, it was this injustice that happened. And to me, it was like, I would have tears running down my face. And I remember my boyfriend sitting there telling me, he goes, you're not a destroyer, right? You don't even want to, uh, as you're pursuing justice, you don't want to do anything that can harm your company because you built that company and you love it so much that even as you want your justice, you're so afraid to speak on this or to talk about it because you don't want it to harm the company that you built. You're a builder and they're destroyers, but you're a builder. What's going to make you happy? What's going to make you wholesome again, at least in the immediate is go out and build. And he said that and immediately a switch went off. I was like, I, I gotta put all this energy into like something that I'd wanna build. And whatever reason it is, I can't explain why. This idea that I had been kind of toying with for a while just kept coming to the forefront. There were a few ideas I was thinking of that I was working on, but this one just kept like, it was, it was, I was obsessed with it. And for me, it was like, how do we solve the literacy crisis across America? How do we help, especially with early literacy? How do we help kids fall in love with reading? Um, and I thought about also just how do we help raise happy future adults? Um, and to me, like a lot of my friends who were artists, 
I was like, the work they do is so powerful. It's so, it brings so much joy, so much life to me. Um, and I think to those around us, it brings our emotions to the forefront, performing arts and theater. And I thought, what if there was a way to blend early literacy and performing arts by, to bring books to life? Like, what if that could happen? And that's kind of how it started. And uh, we've, uh, it's been, it's worked really well for us. I mean, we're accredited vendor with, uh, we're a contracted vendor with New York City Department of Education. We are in classrooms. We're in wow. Classrooms. Uh, growing 100% month over month. Uh, so we surpassed the 20K MRR mark, which is really exciting. Congratulations. Um, this is double uh, double that of the previous uh, gig at, at one point. Thank you. Thank you. It's uh, YC it, time. It, yeah. It's been really, really um, a lot faster. So obviously one thing I'll say to founders is now having seen this um, outcome, whether you want to call it at the end of the day, we did have a successful exit that my co-founders killed, but you know, took it all the way. But even if you want to call that failure, whatever you want to dub it as, what I'll say to founders is even if you feel like your startup, the knowledge, as long as you understood the no's and were obsessed with understanding how you can turn that no into a yes, when you start your second company, it's going to only help you 10x uh, and grow so much faster because you've made those mistakes. So um, this time around, even though completely different industry, completely different domain, here we were uh, not making a lot of those time-consuming mistakes and really understanding how to approach our customer and get to the customer um, and how to add value. Because for me, I really yeah. do believe that uh, like the problem that I'm obsessed with solving is by grade four, 40% of students across America, by the time they reach grade four, are reading two levels below their grade level. So we are yeah. failing almost half of our youth by the time they, before they even graduate elementary school. And there's no catching up, right? Then this problem just becomes a cyclical effect yeah. and is a representation of the socioeconomic uh, imbalance that we see in our nation. And uh, a lot of our work is with Title I schools. And what, what makes me really passionate is the way that we do our workshops, the way that we have our lesson plans in schools is how our amazing uh, community of artists and educators are able to have the kids fall in love with reading, to have the confidence and passion to read, to have the analysis and comprehension and do better on tests. Like that, it's, it's really, um, it's a really exciting thing to be able to see the impact of your work now, not years down the road, right? So we're able to like actually see how we're making a difference today. It's really cool. Yeah, and what I love about it, it's totally scalable. This same problem exists in many other countries. Um, and also the literacy point that you mentioned about reading ability in different grades is actually a very strong income correlator. It has a geography correlator, it has a gender correlation as well. So I think uh, more power to what you're building and who you're building it for. Thank you. But infinite scale, I think uh, uh, you're, uh, you know, you've uh, learned uh, uh, some important lessons from scaling a very successful business. And yeah, now I mean, it's time for next. Yeah, so like what I'll say to that is absolutely a lot of applications in so many other industries, but um, focus is everything, right? So like today you uh, focus on the thing that is important to the business today and like what, and it sounds so simple, like focus on what matters today, but it really is uh, because there's so many other areas you can scale and grow into as a founder sometimes and the hardest thing is saying no to something. So one thing for us was like, I always tell people when we sit around the room and talk about adjacent industries, like, hey, that's real and we can go there. But you know what? New York City Department of Education is the largest education district in the U.S. Let's kill it there. Let's serve every elementary school there. Let's have a really great program. Let's make sure that we successfully let our reputation speak for itself. And then we can talk about, you know, doing middle school and we can talk about high school and how that skills out. We can talk about beyond books and literacy. How do we move into like uh, other types of maybe math and science and other subjects? Because I do believe it's important. Right. There, but absolutely no doubt uh, scalable to countries beyond because to your point, literacy matters regardless of where you're located. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, essentially you're building out a marketplace now. Um, how does that, uh, how does Tiny Broadway really work? Yeah. So the way that it works is we go ahead and have these workshops that we pair in classrooms and we specifically pair uh, books uh, with our workshops. So we interpret the books and bring it to life through art and theater. The concept is really simple. Um, what inspired me was uh, when we think of what Lynn did uh, with a piece of history textbook, Alexander Hamilton, and brought that textbook to life with Hamilton the musical. Um, what he did wasn't just you know, make a super blockbuster hit uh, that the, that everyone is obsessed with, but also kids and students. 
especially elementary school students are obsessed with. In fact, we can say that confidently say that students have learned more about Alexander Hamilton, stats, dates, figures, uh, storyline of the history, through and from inspired that from that musical than from any textbook setting. And so that was phenomenal to me, right? Like that was so crazy. And I thought, can we do that with every textbook? Can we go ahead and do that with just books in general? Can we help make kids see that book come to life and fall in love with reading? And so we have this really cool workshop format um, and we have these amazing artists and educators that we pair for it. We take their creative concepts and we bring books to life. Uh, and we have specific books that we uh, pair with, but we're always scaling out our book list. Um, and for us, what's really important also in the books that we select is that we give voice to diverse authors, um, not only because it's good business for us at the end of the day, our biggest client is New York City and our students are as diverse as the beautiful city of New York. Um, but what on a personal level matters to me is like when I think of my nephew Aziz, I would hope that when he goes to school, he's four, I would hope that when he goes to school, he'll be able to, you know, as a brown Muslim boy, he'll be able to see himself in the books that are selected. And uh, so it matters to us both on a business level, but on a personal level that we really foster diversity in the books that we pick so students can see themselves so the books are relevant, so our content is relevant, and hopefully, just hopefully inspire a love of reading. Um, and we're betting that we're gonna be able to do that and continue to do that with Tiny Broadway. Awesome. Last section of this uh, discussion is uh, regrets and high points. Um, what was the highest point uh, you've been an entrepreneur now close to a decade, run, exited a successful company, done really interesting things, but also had a very, very peculiar conclusion, right? So um, talk to us about that. And if you could reflect on how you felt and what you would have done differently when you started seeing the early signs of lack of trust, uh, what's your advice to uh, entrepreneurs and future entrepreneurs? Oh man, yeah. Um, I think the high point for me is really simple. Uh, beyond obviously the first checks in the mail, the first like contracts closed, those I always remember, those are so powerful. Um, our first early users, like, uh, you know, in, in terms of like a product, I think when it comes to uh, your friends using your product and saying something really positive about it, that always matters on a personal level. But the most highlight for me is team members. So, you know, uh, when we had uh, with Eve Effect, it was like team members that were hired um, and, and were part of the team. And then here it would be like our artist community, especially when they come and write to me or, or message me or will say, hop on a call and say like, this has given me purpose, what we do here, being able to see the impact of my work. Like having a mission is cool, but then having a mission that like other people can share and takes on a life bigger yeah. than, than you as that founder. God, I don't think there's any feeling uh, that comes close to it. And I don't think there's ever a day that that becomes like boring to hear. Um, it's such an exciting feeling. Uh, and so that's a highlight for me, for sure, hands down. Um, in terms of the low point, like, I, you know, there's no substituting for a good person. So people say, you know, do you want to hire someone who's a good person? Who's like, you know, people say don't hire assholes or not asshole rule. I think the easier way to put it is like, do you want to hire a good person? Because the bar shouldn't be so low. Um, someone who has strong ethical uh, standards, or do you want to just hire someone who's like really competent in the specific skill set that you need? And I think the mistake that I look back at is thinking that, you know, going into business with people who were really competent in something that I knew was going to be important to the business, that that was so important that I can overlook and manage that I'll be able to manage the other uh, shortcomings. But hmm. uh, I don't think that, uh, I, I don't like to reflect too much on hindsight because honest to goodness, if you ask me, even now with the ending and what's happened, if you ask me, could you have seen this years ago? Maybe I'm naive, maybe I like to trust people and the world and I hope I don't lose sight of that as a result of this experience, but I just still find it hard to fathom doing this to someone or that they would like, it's hard for me to sit there and say, aha, I could have seen when they were, I saw a lot of things that, should have made me pause though and say, these people, are they aligned with the mission of this business? Do they care about mm. the customer that we're serving? Why are they involved with this? Is it the right reasons? Not to say that financial gains are alone the wrong reasons. I mean, you're building a for-profit company, but do they have other drivers beyond that? Um, and uh, I don't think I spent enough time realizing how dangerous it would be to have that misalignment um, and then at some point when I realized it, we were just in too deep. The company was already doing well. I mean, it was, it was at a point where we had all vested. So you had to look back and say, well, how do you now manage this? 
And so the advice was, well, this is a good time to now exit, have a graceful exit at least. Um, and so that's what we tried to then do is maneuver the ship. And, and my job, my personal responsibility was making sure that my customers, customers and my team would be well taken care of as CEO and founder. And mm. I took that responsibility really seriously. Um, and so uh, that's one of the- Even at your personal cost. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't I didn't think that uh, it would end the way it did, uh, but I, I really believe that in all of this, I can keep my head held high um, and uh, I don't have to, uh, I, I don't know if the other party feels shame and embarrassment. I don't spend too much time thinking about that anymore, to be honest, but um, I can keep my head held high and say with, with what resources I had, I did the best I could in that situation, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um... Uh, clearly, what you built, the values you, uh, you stand for, and what you are building is really an inspiration for people listening. And I hope that uh, in the future adventures, we partner in many things. But uh, yeah, this conversation feels like a Netflix show. So we call ourselves like the Netflix for careers, but it's such an insightful Netflix show, I must <laughs> add. Uh, thank you, Anissa. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Take care.